let me, t- let me start with a story today. Uh, the place is, uh, this is a true story, uh, the place is London in uh, 1725. A baby boy of the name John was born, and John's mother was a devout Christian, and she had high hopes for her son. She prayed fervently that John would one day become a minister of the gospel. Sadly, um, when John was seven, his mother passed away, and John was left to be raised by his dad, who was a merchant ship captain, uh, and somebody not interested in the slightest in religion or in God or in faith at all. When John became a teenager, he started to sail with his dad, and it didn't take too long for him to essentially become ensnared in the dark world of the transatlantic slave trade. And his life took on a whole different direction. It was a far cry from the hopes that his mother had had for him. He was known to have a rebellious attitude and to live a very immoral lifestyle. And he was punished frequently for his misconduct, but it didn't seem to stop him. He seemed to just keep spiraling and spiraling into his own sense of satisfaction and worldliness. And a strange twist of fate, John himself was actually captured and enslaved in West Africa. And he was exposed to brutal conditions and mistreated, as you can imagine. He eventually did get free, uh, but it didn't change him. He continued to live a, a life of suffering and misery. And when it seems like things couldn't get any worse, John found himself on the Greyhound, which is a ship. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be a joke. That's just the name of a ship. And uh, in the midst of a terrible storm, the, uh, the year was uh, 1748, and as the storm raged around the ship, all of the crew, including John, were convinced that they would be lost at sea, that they would drown that day. The ship was taking on enormous amounts of water, and it was getting more and more dire. They had no control over what was happening. This is just off of the coast of Ireland that this was happening. In that moment, John cried out to the God who he had denied his entire life. Now, for us, we might look at John's life and think about how he's lived and the terrible things he had done, and we might say, he should pay for his sins. And maybe even some would look at this storm and say, could this be God's judgment against him? I'm going to pause the story there and tell you the conclusion of it at the end of the sermon, but it ties into our, our sermon today. So today we're starting this new series called The Real Jesus, and uh, not the fake Jesus, that would be a bad name, bad title for a sermon series, um, The Real Jesus, and we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we'll be starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 in just a minute, and we have Bibles in the pews, so use those, and if you don't have a, if you don't have a Bible, please keep it, it's our gift to you, we'll come up on the screen uh, in just a minute as well. And um, one of the things that strikes me about the life of Jesus is uh, that Jesus is still very popular, Still, he's very respected, right? People don't always like Christians or organized religion, they might say, but a lot of people respect Jesus and like Jesus. And what makes me nervous about this is that 
if people actually took the time to read about what Jesus said and what Jesus did, my concern is that a lot less people would like him. Because, yes, Jesus gave us the greatest moral teachings. I mean, the things he said, you can't, you can't make up. You can't repeat them. No one else came up with them. They're incredible things. And yes, he's very inspiring, but he also said some of the hardest things that have ever been spoken in the history of the human race. I mean, the words of Jesus, I mean, he is a, Jesus is a, in one sense, a divisive figure that people either wanted to murder him or they wanted to worship him. And his words are still inspiring people today. You still see it. You see it in works of literature. People are quoting Jesus all the time. You see it in speeches. People will quote Jesus. You see it on, if you're on social media, you'll see Bible verses and things that Jesus has said. You'll see it posted on social media. His words are so powerful and so profound, they can even improve country music songs and bad tattoos. But we can tend to have this cartoon version of Jesus in our mind where Jesus is just kind of a fun-loving hippie who likes to travel around spreading love and hugs everywhere and wearing tie-dye t-shirts. Um, either that or he's just like a, a metrosexual European man. Um, there's a few different options of ways you can view Jesus. But if Jesus is just an all-inclusive, all kind person, then he'd just be like any other kind of college professor today. But you'd never find Jesus on a college campus today. He'd be canceled, instantly canceled. Walks on campus, he'd be canceled. Jesus is not nice. This is one of the things we're going to learn about Jesus as we go through this series today. Jesus is not nice. Yes, he's gracious. Oh, he's so gracious. We're going to learn about that, how, how incredible his grace is. But Jesus said offensive things, he could be aggressive, and hard to pin down, hard to deal with. Not nice, definitely not nice. Aggressive and exclusive, but truthful, full of truth. You either hated him or you loved him. What we must do in this series is we must look at the Jesus of Scripture, because that's the Jesus who can heal our pain, who can satisfy our hearts, and who can set us free. We've got to, we've got to get rid of our cartoony view of Jesus being this nice man who said some inspiring things. He's so much more than that. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this. Lord Jesus, we pray to you that you would help us know who you are. That you would help us get rid of our false ideas and imaginations and that we would grapple with not just the inspiring things you said, but the hard things you said. Because in them there is life. In them there is freedom. In them there is truth. And Lord, we thank you that you are the truth. And I pray that you'd make it real to us today. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We're just doing one verse today, but it's going to be epic. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark, the gospel writer, says this. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'll read it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is God's word. Now, 
If you rewind all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, this first verse here from Mark is a bit reminiscent of the first verse in the Bible where uh, the, the author of Genesis says, in the beginning, in the beginning, it tells us in the beginning God created, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Mark is drawing from that phrase, the beginning of the gospel. There is something about Jesus coming into the world and beginning this gospel message, this gospel work, that is like the creation of the world in the first place. And uh, Jesus, you know, being God, come become flesh, right? It was called, it's called the incarnation, God coming as a man. This idea of the heavenly realms or the spiritual realm being reconnected with the fallen realm, the realm we live in, that Jesus combines and fuses those things back together, that there's a creative work, a powerful work of Genesis power that Jesus has come to do at the beginning of his life here, his ministry here on earth 2,000 years ago. And we're told that he came to start a new kingdom. There's a new, new kingdom that he's creating, that he's the king of this kingdom. And it was a surprise they, how it exactly was going to work. These things have been promised before, that there would be somebody who would come and that would set things right throughout the Bible's history, right? The people of God, ancient Israel, that there have been prophets and messengers and people speaking and promising, hey, something's going to happen. This thing's going to change at some point. Something dramatic's going to happen. And even though it had been promised, it had still been concealed. So they weren't quite sure exactly what, what's it going to look like when this figure comes, when this person comes. What's it going to look like? How's it going to work? And so it was a big surprise to them. But in this surprise, Jesus has come to create a new world. And this is what everyone's trying to do. Everyone's trying to remake the world. And it's dangerous to let human beings do that because we do terrible things when we try to remake the world. But Jesus has come, like at the very beginning, to recreate everything with this new kingdom. And the work that he came to do in his earthly ministry, and his, his work is happening in stages. It's begun. It's not completed yet. It's begun. And the work that he specifically came to do in this period of time where he lived on earth as a man is the work of salvation. The work of salvation, spiritual salvation. And this is the idea of making dead people live, bringing people into a relationship with God, people, be, their hearts being transformed, that they are born again. And that work of salvation is only going to actually make sense once you get to the end of the book of Mark where Jesus is crucified in substitution for sinners. So spoiler alert on, on that if you didn't know the ending. That's what we're going to see in the story. And we're told that it's not just a general beginning. It's not just the beginning of this new, this new kingdom. It's the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's a very common word. We have gospel music. People talk about Oh, that's, that's gospel truth, you know. It's a phrase, cultural phrase that we use. What is the gospel? The word gospel simply means announcement. Announcement. Hopefully not like church announcements, unless they're done by Rochelle. <laughs> announcement. Or it can mean good announcement. Um, this word was used in particular to talk about military victories. So if you think about 
Again, ancient Israel, you think about them being conquered by the Babylonians or other people that conquered them, the Persians, others. You, from Babylon's perspective, you could say, have you heard the good news that Babylon defeated Israel? Have you heard the gospel of Babylon? That's how you could use that phrase. It was a military victory. We won. Did you hear the good news? We're announcing it. We're declaring it to everyone. This victory has been accomplished. Other ways that gospel had been used, the word gospel had been used before it was applied to the Christian faith, was a similar idea to military victory, but if uh, people had been set free from oppression, you could say, have you heard the good news? Have you heard the gospel that, about, the, about the, these people being set free from oppression? Have you heard that? Today, if, uh, if the Cubs win a game, you could say, have you heard the gospel of the Cubs? That would be a legitimate way to use the phrase. Now, it's not good news if you're a Sox fan. That's all right. Have you heard this? And so Jesus came onto the world stage to declare to all of creation, to the entire cosmos, to every person, the whole earth, to know, to declare this great victory that he has come to accomplish. There's a new sheriff in town, there's a new boss. And he's come with this mission. And if we understand the nature of the gospel, we actually can understand um, why there were four gospels written. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're just looking at Mark in this series. Many of our small groups are going through the other gospels. I think the only one missing is Luke, which is sad because Luke's a great, they're all great though. And what's interesting to know is even though there's four gospels, four um, perspectives on the same story, Typically, the Bible only uses the word gospel in the singular, very rarely in the plural. And so even though you've got four different accounts from four different witnesses trying to relay to us their experience of Jesus and how Jesus lived and who he was and what he taught and what he said and what he did, even though we, we, we have that from them, there is one coherent gospel message. There is the gospel. This is the nature of the gospel. There's only one version of it. There's one truth that has come from heaven to earth to declare to us this salvation. Now, what makes, this, what makes the news, this, this announcement of victory, what makes it good? Is it just that Jesus is offering the salvation? Is that what makes it good? Well, it depends how you get the salvation, doesn't it? We all need salvation. Salvation is a very religious word. What does that mean? We... Uh, Christians always talk about being saved, right? What does it mean to, to have salvation, to be saved? Well, hopefully you know it, but we've all got to be set free and saved from our own darkest impulses. The human heart is rotten to the core, and we're all capable of the worst evil, and have all done terrible things, and given the right circumstances, would do some of the worst things that have ever been done by people. So we've got to be saved. We need salvation from ourselves, but also we need salvation from judgment against sin. That God is a holy, righteous God, and he stands in judgment righteously. The, the only one who can assess, properly assess every human heart and will bring consequence and bring justice about, we need to be saved from that judgment. We also need to be saved from the forces of darkness, from demonic powers, from temptation. 
We need to be saved from all these things. And so the question remains is, what kind of salvation does Jesus offer? What makes it good? Because it's not good if you have to do something bad to get it. You have to make kind of a deal with the devil, as it were. You have to sell your soul to get it. It's not, it's not bad. It's not, it's, not, it's not good salvation. Or it's, not, it's not a good announcement if it can be taken from you. Or you can misplace it somehow. You can just lose it. I just, I had that salvation. It was pretty good while I had it, but now it's gone. It's not good if it's false. It's a false promise. That's not good. That's not good. That's not a good message for you. It's not a good message if it's incomplete. Well, it works sometimes, but sometimes it only works like 50% of the time. It's not good if, if you don't understand how, what it costs, if you can't pay the price. That's, that's not good news. If you don't know, well, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you get this salvation? Uh, how, how, can I afford it? What, what, do I have to, what do I have to give up? What do I have to do in order to get this salvation? Don't know the price. That's not good news. You can't afford it. It doesn't help us if it's ambiguous. Well, I'm just not sure exactly. This is a little fuzzy in certain places. That's not good news to you or to me. If there are clauses in it, you know, anytime you're agreeing with terms and conditions, right, on a phone, you've got to click the terms and conditions. Every time I click it, I'm thinking, there's something in here that they're going to use against me at some point. Like, to say, well, we know in the big print it says this, but in the fine print it says this, which means the big print doesn't count. Right? That's how law works, if you didn't know that. That's why it's all complicated. That's why you can't understand it. Because they're like, well, that means that. And you're like, really? How, does he, how do you know? Well, if it's ambiguous, that's not good news. If there's clauses in it that you don't understand or that undo it, that's not good news. If it's dependent on you or me, that's not good news. That's not good news. That's, 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 in fact, that's rubbish news. That's, that's horrible news. That's horrendous news. We could say it's redonkulous <laughs> news. It's, that's, that, that would be like Jesus, I mean, Jesus coming with the greatest message of salvation that could ever be declared to all humanity that he's going to fix the one problem that we have that no one else has been able to fix. He's going to do it, but by the way, it's going to make you miserable and you're always going to wonder if God actually loves you. Is that good news? Does that sound like a a good gospel, a good announcement? Because it sounds like a military victory is we won. We had these enemies who wanted to destroy us, but we beat them and now they're gone. And so now we're safe. That's the nature of of a good announcement. And so Jesus has come to do something on the contrary to the bad news. He's come to do the good news, the greatest news, the best news that we could ever have. This new work. And here's how this new work, here's, here's how it functions. Here's what it means. We receive this work, and this is the foundation. This is why we're laying this foundation before we go through the rest of Mark to understand what Jesus has come to do. He's not just a nice guy spreading hugs around and wearing tie-dye t-shirts. He's come and he invites us to repent and to put our faith in him. So salvation, our part of salvation is this. We repent and we put our faith in him. Now that's really good news. That's, That's such good news. Because it means that this salvation 
is not based on our own good works, our own righteousness. No human being can ever do enough good works to make it to God. What we need is we need to be reconnected with God. God's the only source of comfort and love and joy and the only promise of eternal life and the promise of purpose now and meaning now. It's the only source. He's the only source of that, and we're disconnected from him. Our sin blocks us from him, and so to make up the difference, you have to get rid of the evil of your own heart and the sin in your own heart, and no human being can ever accumulate enough good works to ever do that. And so the salvation message of Jesus is, it's okay, here's how you do it. You repent and you put your faith in Jesus. This is the gospel message. This is the work of salvation. This is such good news. Do you understand how radical this is? Do you understand how radical this is? It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our performance. It's based on the life of Jesus, on his performance. And this is what we're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see not just an example for us to live by. We do see that. Not just a good life, but a perfect life. A sinless life. Not just an inspirational life, although we see that too, but a holy life. A life that God looks at and says, that's the life that you all should live and that I should live. But because we can't, he says, just put your hope in it. Repent. Repent of your sin and trust. Trust that that life can be given to you and that will be your salvation. So that means this message of salvation, our part of it is repentance and faith. We place our faith into it, but it means the foundation of it, the reason it works in the first place is that it is based on the radical grace of Jesus, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the willingness of God to forgive us of our sins. And so God is the one who comes up with this idea. This is is very radical. There's no other religion like this. God's the one. He comes up with this idea of the gospel. He sets the terms. He clarified the terms are very clear. There's a whole cohesive storyline of this throughout the whole Bible that makes it very clear how this works. And not only does he create the deal and offer the deal, but he makes the deal work. He makes salvation work. He ensures that it cannot be undone. It's a once and done thing. That's why it's the gospel. That's why it's a good announcement. We defeated the enemy. We've overcome the greatest problem. It's done. It's finished. That's why he says on the cross. Jesus says, it is finished. I mean, I'm just praying right now that the Holy Spirit will show you. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what we will need. That's what I need. That's the only hope we have is that the Holy Spirit will show us the finished work how complete it really is. And so this means, what this means is, it means no matter your past, no matter your weaknesses, no matter your mistakes, no matter what you've done or what has been done to you, you can be forgiven by God. You can be saved. You can know God. You can have your heart transformed and changed in a moment. I mean, he continues to work on us, continues to change us, but there's, oh, there's those moments And he comes to us and he breathes life into us and he makes us to be born again. This is the amazing work of Jesus. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter 
how gross the darkest parts of your life might look like, how much shame, whatever it is, it can be taken away by Jesus. It can be forgiven by Jesus. It can be redeemed only by Jesus. No matter what it is you've done, even if you, even if you still have a MySpace account, <laughs> or you like 90s grunge, or you're still doing the Macarena at weddings, or whatever it is, no matter how low you've gone, you can be redeemed, you can be saved by Jesus. This is really, 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 joking aside, this is really, really, really good news. You know, Christians do throw around the word gospel, and that the problem with a, with a word becoming too familiar is that we, we forget the meaning of it, right? That's, that's one of the problems with um, ceremonial religious practices, right? They start off very meaningful. The people that invent traditions, I mean, when you, I mean, the thing you should hope for is to be there at the very beginning because it's going to mean the most and be the most amazing thing. But as time goes on, the generations forget to explain why you do the things you do. And so then people grow up in it and they're like, this is pointless, it doesn't mean anything. What is this? You say, well, it's because we forgot to explain why we do it. And so even with the word gospel, we can say it, but we don't really understand it. You know, so people can say, well, I, you know, do you believe the gospel? Or I believe the gospel. Or did you share the gospel? Did you really share that? Did you, did you get it right? Did, or is, are you, are you gospel-centered? Is your church gospel-centered? Was that a gospel-centered sermon? Or, or, or sometimes you'll have Christians say, all you need to do is you just need to preach the gospel. You don't need to worry about other stuff. Just do, if you just do that, that's all you need to do. People use it in all kinds of different ways. And the, the problem with saying these things in these ways are if you don't understand the content of the gospel... You don't understand what it actually means. We're in danger of actually burdening people with a message rather than giving a message of blessing to people. We're in danger of declaring the gospel and using the right terminology, but what we do is we hand people a gospel of works. We hand people a gospel of condemnation. You still have to perform well enough. You still have to do these things. You still have to get these things right. And that's what the Pharisees did. In the time of Jesus. That's why they hated him so much. That's why they crucified him. Because he went against everything that they taught and said. Because they were just consumed with religiosity. They didn't understand the kindness of God towards them. We don't want to be like those religious people. We want to be people who are humbled by the work of Jesus. By the radical, free grace of Jesus. Jesus has come to do something new. And it's free. The beginning, the beginning of the gospel. The, the, the most potent way we could think of in our church to describe the gospel or to talk about how to live out the gospel is in our purpose statement. So as a church, our purpose statement is to enjoy and share the grace of Jesus. And it's important that we start with the idea that it's something that we should enjoy. The grace of Jesus is something we should enjoy. Like being a miserable Christian should be an oxymoron to us. Of course, we can suffer and we can, of course, we have, you know, uh, all emotions are fine. 
Um, we experience ups and downs. Of course, we, you know, we want to be emotional. We, we want to have emotional integrity and emotional health. We understand that. We're not just fake, happy people all the time. But we, we understand that to enjoy what God has done for us in this radical gift of salvation is the point. That's the daily task, is waking up and finding our greatest joy in God. God is my greatest joy, my greatest comfort, my greatest delight. Like God blesses me with other things I can enjoy, but I enjoy them to his glory. I enjoy them to who he is, but that's enjoying his grace. If, if you lose everything else in your life, you can never lose that. If you lose everyone you love, you lose all your possessions and money, you lose your reputation, you lose everything that's dear to you, you're never going to lose the grace of Jesus. And there's always joy in that. This is, this is the most wonderful narrative that you can ever live. This is the most wonderful life you could ever build. The most, the most joyful identity that anyone can ever receive. Because, see, the identities that we try to create for ourselves, that the world tries to put on us, are so toxic, so destructive, so terrible. You have to understand this. Identity is something that you receive. And, and you know that because what's our world doing right now with identity? Is trying to enforce identity validation externally. That's what's happening in our world. People are trying to enforce identity validation externally. Validate my identity. Why, why do people do that? Because identity has to be received from outside. Because we don't know, we don't know who we are. We, we're not self-made. We're not, we're not created ourselves. We've been designed a particular way. And so identity has to be received from God. And so the greatest identity you can receive is that you have a God who knows you're not able to live the right way, but made provision for your salvation. Came in to say, I'm going to do it for you. It's free to you. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning work that Jesus was born to do in his life and ministry, the salvation. I tell you, if you can, if you, if you can understand it, it changes everything. It changes everything. Did you know that, did you know that this is it? When, when you open the Bible, this is what you learn. Do you know that? On every page of the Bible, every story of the Bible, when you go through it, this is the message. This is the message, this good news from Jesus. And the gospel is not, it's not just a system of theology, although it is that. It's not just an ideology or a belief, although we do believe it. It's a person. Because it's, it's the beginning of the gospel, what? Of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. A person. We have this quote here any second now, from Brennan Manning. He says, a well-known author and theologian said, uh, the gospel declares that no matter how dutiful or prayerful we are, we can't save ourselves. What Jesus did was sufficient. This life that is lived for us is a, such a gift to us. Even the name of Jesus. What does the name of Jesus mean? Jesus is actually a derivative of the name Joshua. So it has the same meaning. Joshua means uh, God is salvation. So even in the name of Jesus, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he's wanting to make it super clear, and in the name that Jesus was given, it's super clear, God is salvation. Any other promise of being set free from your 
your own darkest impulses, being set free from judgment against your own sin, being set free from uh, demonic forces in the world, and even being set free from the, the influence of the world around us, any promise, other promise of salvation is fraudulent, is dishonest, is incapable. God is salvation. It's in the name, Jesus, Jesus. God is salvation. And then Christ, it's not a, it's not a, a last name. Some people think that. I think Jesus Christ, Christ is the last name. Christ is a title. Christ uh, essentially means Messiah or Savior. You know, this is the, the idea that um, kings of Israel would be anointed, right? They'd be, they'd be chosen. God would choose a king to lead the people to salvation. They'd be anointed as king. The, to be called the Christ is to say Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one that's been anointed. And even during the life of Jesus, he was anointed a few times as a symbol of his kingly nature and his role to bring salvation to the world. And so it's Jesus Christ together. It's God is salvation. And Jesus is the one who has been chosen to bring that salvation. God is salvation, and Jesus is the one chosen, anointed to bring that salvation. So those together are a self-reinforcing idea that Jesus is God. God is salvation, and Jesus is the one chosen to bring salvation. So by logic, you just go back to the first one again. Oh, if God is salvation, and Jesus is the one chosen to bring that salvation, Jesus is God. It's amazing. But not only is it in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a person is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Put that verse back up. The Son of God. Right at the beginning of this account, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants to make this very clear, to lay this foundation early on, right here, of Jesus' identity and Jesus' purpose, what he has come to do and who he is. How sad it is that so many Christians, churches and ministries have abandoned and departed from this foundational truth. That Jesus is not just a son, he's the son. He's not just a savior, he's the savior. Now to get this point across, Mark wants us to have a sandwich. He wants us to have a sandwich. Mark likes sandwiches. Let me explain what I mean. Bear with me on this. We know that sandwiches are important to the, the meaning of everything, right? Hey, come on. Sandwich, any sandwich people in the room? Some of the greatest inventions of all time, sandwiches. Um, before there was Jersey Mike's, there was Jersey Mark's, I guess we could say. Thank you. What, what do I mean by this? So, so Mark uses this literary function, this literary style, the, 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 the sandwich. And uh, he'll do this a few times throughout his gospel. As we go through it, we'll see it. We'll pick up on it when he does it. But he'll, he'll start telling a story, and that's the, the first piece of bread. And then he'll interrupt it with another story. That's the filling. And then he'll come and finish the, the first story at the end, and that's the second piece of bread, and that's your sandwich. And the, way, the reason he does this is because he's wanting to tell a point and the middle story 
explains the story either side. That's the, the literary style he uses. But he also does it to the entire book. The, the book, the Gospel of Mark, is one giant tasty sandwich. And so if you're a sandwich person, you just know this is good. This is good food that's going to make you happy. Nothing like a good sandwich. Favorite sandwiches, anyone? Well, that should be the question of the week, favorite sandwich. So the whole, the whole gospel is, is, is a sandwich. So at the beginning here, right at the beginning, he's declaring Jesus is the Son of God. Fast forward to the end of the, of the gospel of Mark, and what you see is you see a Roman soldier right at the end. As he sees Jesus dying on the cross, he looks at Jesus. This is somebody who represents Rome, the powers of the day, and he says, surely he was the Son of God. That's a sandwich. The beginning, and Mark's got these two points. He wants to drive it home, the identity, the true nature of who Jesus is. I mean, there are, and notice it in the verse, it's capitalized, right? Son is capitalized. You've got to notice that. Whenever you read, read, read your Bible, hopefully you're reading your Bible, notice every word, every letter, notice it. Son is capitalized. Now, there are a few other times where other people are called sons of God in the Bible. You know, uh, the first man that, that was made, Adam, he's called a son of God at one point. Um, even Israel at, some, at one point referred to as a son of God. And, um, we're called sons and daughters of God, right? So how is this different? Well, when Jesus claimed to be God's son, and when people say that he's God's son, it's different. And we know this in part because the Pharisees when they heard, they wanted to murder Jesus because they said, in calling himself the Son of God, he is making himself equal with God. He's not just saying, oh, he's like an offspring of God. Oh, he was made by God, and so therefore he's kind of a son in that regard. By when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming to be of the same nature as God. That's quite the claim. Most people that claim that, in fact, everyone else who has claimed that is just crazy. Jesus is not crazy. Jesus is an eternal son. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But there's something in the nature of Jesus. You have Father, Son, and Spirit, the, the eternal trinity. And you have something in the nature of Jesus that could be described best as sonship. It's not like our sonship, but that's the best term to describe it as some kind of subordination to the Father, that Jesus was the most suitable person to be sent from the Father to bring salvation to us, to earth. So Jesus has a very special relationship with the Father in that he is the Son, not just a Son, but the Son, not just a special relationship with the Father, that, that he is God as well, equal in deity and glory to the Father and to the Spirit, this amazing mystery in God. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. It says that Jesus can be described as the radiance of God's glory. If you think about light coming from the sun, like, well, the light that left the sun is the same light that's hitting me right now. And maybe that's one way to look at Jesus a little bit, that he's the light from God that actually reached out to us and touched us. He's still God. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, time and again, Mark reaffirms over and over and over again that Jesus is the Son of God, capital S. This isn't a conspiracy theory that was invented by a Roman ruler back in the day. 
this is the foundational truth of the gospel message. And the gospel is only good news if it rests on God. If it rests on anybody else, it, there could be mistakes, there could be errors. It would fail, but it rests on what Jesus has done. This is the foundation to everything we're going to do. As we go through the life and ministry of Jesus, as we see this perfect life displayed for us, this perfect sacrifice made for us all the way through, as we see it, everything comes from this foundation of the identity of Jesus. It is sad in our day and age to see so many Christians getting into Unitarianism, Universalism. Well, there's all kind of ways to God, isn't there? Well, this is the offensive, these are the offensive words of Jesus. No, there's not. There's only one way to God. It's through Jesus, through faith and repentance in Jesus. There's no secret knowledge that you, this is it. I mean, there's more you can learn. Yeah, there's more theology. There's some things you can dig into. But I've got to tell you, there's no other secret to the Christian faith. This is it. This is the apex of the teaching right here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That he is the chosen one to save sinners, to bring good news, the radical free gift of grace. What happened to our friend John, the slave trader? Well, by miraculous intervention, they survived the storm. And it was this near-death experience that marked a turning point in John's life. He started to notice and appreciate and see the grace of God in his life, the kindness of God, the salvation of God. So he gave his life to Jesus, and over time he ended up leaving the slave trade. And in 1764, he was ordained as a minister of the gospel, fulfilling his mother's hopes and dreams and prayers. John went on to become a famous preacher and well-known hymn writer. John Newton is famously known for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. His testimony, his life transformation, is an incredible story of the power of God, not just to save anyone, but to save the most despicable, the most lost, those who have done some of the worst evil. This is the grace of of God to us. We're going to sing Amazing Grace again. We sang it last week. We're going to sing it again today. A special request I put in. It seemed appropriate. As we begin this series today, the real Jesus, the message that we've got to get through into our hearts is that we could never do it, but he did it for us. It's free. It's free.